0: I remember my mom taking us to Mass when I was growing up. We were raised Catholic. And when I was around about 10 years old, my parents got divorced. My mom brought us to church one day, and I think I have the earliest memory I have of starting my own religious journey. A priest at the church wouldn't give my mother communion because she was divorced. My mom grabbed our hands, turned us around, walked us out of the building, and said, we're going to go find a church where the priest to actually knows something about Jesus. And I think that was what started my journey that continues today towards finding a more grace filled spirituality. My journey has been one of trying to find and develop and construct that spirituality and that religion that we saw in the story with the loaves. Where we practice abundance and giving. That we saw reflected in the reading from the Acts of the Apostles, where the early church pooled all their resources and shared what they had in common. Kind of like the original Hopedale community. Go figure. That Mr. Blue must have read his Bible. One of the great things I encountered on my journey towards finding a grace-filled religion is when I read Andrew Greeley's book in the late 80s called The Catholic Myth. And he talked about how you actually image the divine and ultimate reality has a great impact on the rest of your life, the way you live, the way you act, even the way you vote. In addition to being a Catholic priest, Greeley became very well known as a popular novelist writing a lot of fiction that described his American Catholic experience. But he was also an academic sociologist and sociological researcher. And so he comes to what he calls the grace scale academically, not just religiously. As part of the University of Chicago's ongoing general social survey, he included a bunch of questions that asked respondents to place themselves in a continuum about how they saw God or ultimate reality. And the choices they were given were, where are you in the continuum between God as father and God as mother? Between God as master or God as spouse and partner? Between God as judge or God as lover? Between God as king or God as your friend? And the results they found were fairly interesting, to say the least. 70% of Americans who responded to the survey, and this was thousands of respondents, the University of Chicago Ongoing General Social Survey, thousands of respondents, 70% in the late 80s saw God as Father. 20 were in the middle with both, and only 5% on the mother end. I would imagine that's a little different now. 45%, of the respondents saw God as friend with king and those seen both in the middle kind of splitting the difference with 28%. He labeled the scores people got from taking these survey questions the grace scale. And high scores on the grace scale favor seeing the divine as mother, spouse, lover, and friend. And what he found was grace scale scores correlate with social and political and cultural opinions and behaviors. People who scored way high on the grace scale, God as mother, spouse, friend, and lover, were less likely to support or vote for Ronald Reagan. Remember, this was in the 80s he did this. More likely to support government assistance programs to lift people out of poverty. High grace scores were more likely to support racial integration and reconciliation work more likely to claim feminist attitudes and views, such as equal pay and reproductive choice, and more likely to oppose capital punishment and torture. Fascinating. The statistical correlation they found held true over constants of age, region of the country, gender, and even educational level. How one imaged the divine reality had a huge impact on the rest of the way one thought and lived and behaved. Was it just a coincidence of religious liberalism? No, they found it held constant over all the variables. It was a little less strong the more educated one was, or the more fundamentalist a religion the person claimed. But it was a strong predictor of attitudes and patterns and even the way one would vote. When Greeley did this in the late 80s with his associates, we were still in the earlier years of, I think, what's been termed the ecumenical age. The Second Vatican Council was 20 years old. The people who were just being born or shortly thereafter were just coming of age, right, from the, from the Kennedy years, when Kennedy, a Catholic, was elected, and we thought that might not be possible, right? So as that ecumenical age started to come of age and people started to, be more cross-cultural, if you will, in their religious experience and knowledge, he does this study that shows how we actually image the divine is important. And it says something about who we are. He was very influenced by a guy named David Tracy, who was a lay Catholic theologian at the University of Chicago, whose major work was something called the analogical imagination. And he claimed, Tracy did that people who were Catholic had a different religious imagination than people who are Protestant in America. And the way that broke down was, he said, the Catholic imagination is analogical. God is in the world. God is the world. God self-decloses through the people and places and events of our lives. The community is a way we learn about and experience the divine. Thus, in the Catholic analogical imagination, the community is sacramental, a way of knowing God. Whereas, he said, the Protestant imagination is dialogical. Where the world is a fallen and sinful place. Where the rise of capitalism mirrored in the Protestant worth ethic. Where industrious individuals stood alone trying to master resources and competition and relationships to make profit the individual struggling alone for personal freedom and autonomy against oppressive social networks that would restrain freedom and hinder profit. Workers in the dialogical Protestant imagination were seen as objects, labor to be used as a resource, whereas the Catholic imagination saw more value in the community and upheld human beings as ends in themselves, not a means to an economic or social or military end. Tracy argued that the Catholic imagination saw human beings as inextricably caught up in a social network of relationship through which divine reality is revealed. In some ways, this is reflected in our own history here. The early Hopedale community, with its blue universalism, was an early crossover of Protestantism into that more analogical, community centered noticing God in relationship, religious imagination. And as our culture has developed over the last hundred or so years, I think we're finally reaching a point where our culture, based in the Protestant imagination and Protestant worth ethic, is starting to fail us. We're getting to a point where the structures and systems we've inherited economic systems, educational systems, political systems, are starting to not really work well for the majority of people anymore. There's a wider yearning for the web of relationality and community that is more common to the analogical imagination. And I think we've gotten to the point where religious imagination isn't so much divided now between Protestant and Catholic, but it's a divide between a fundamentalism and grace, The divide is between a traditionalist, individualist, individual piety and salvation driven by rules and holiness practices on one side. And on the other, the more open, universalist, relational, progressive approach of seeing the divine in others, seeing the divine in community, seeing the divine in the natural world around us. Creating the beloved community, seeking justice for all. I think Unitarian Universalism is a product of a more analogical imagination in and of itself, especially as we have evolved since Unitarianism and Universalism came together in the early 60s. We have developed a modern religion that is collaborative and relational and non-hierarchical, where the view of the divine is many and varied and inclusive, and we really value building relationship. I think one of the things that we're seeing in Unitarian Universalism is a faith tradition that continues to build on what might be said that higher end of the grace scale. Our Unitarian side was very rooted in the Protestant ethic, salvation by character and whatnot, but our Universalist side is fast becoming the prime religious expression in our culture across all denominations and various religions of that analogical, relational, earth-centered, community-based religious imagination. Think about our movement for a second. Our LGBTQ work, standing on the side of love, our support of immigration rights, our green sanctuary environmental movements, our anti-racism, anti-oppression work. Our entire religious movement is now becoming about community and relationality and building the beloved community. I think it's little surprise that our congregations that are so steeply rooted in their dialogical early American Protestant imaginations are finding it really hard to adapt to the more universalist, more community-engaged, more relational religious approach that is becoming the norm. I think our UU churches now that are thriving, Unitarian Universalism thrives now, where we recognize we have a high score on the grace scale. That seeing those sides of spirituality are what's giving life to the movement. Our congregations that are almost stuck or mired in the individualist intellectual type of religion of traditional Unitarianism, I think are finding it harder to move into the community, move, behind, move beyond their walls, and make a shift towards the modern, universalist, relational, progressive spirituality. The Grayscale, I think, has even been reinforced by modern studies into how people with liberal and conservative viewpoints actually have brains that work differently. Have you heard about these these, uh, studies? They, they, They put people into an MRI and watch their brain activity when they showed them various images from pleasant sunrises to really gory things of violence and war and looked what fired in the brains of people. And then they asked them questions about their religious and political and cultural opinions and they found astounding correlations between the science of how their brains fired and their religion and their politics. You know, we tend to think our... Reasoning, our political decision making, it's just a cognitive process. We think it all out for the best way, but it's not. It's really an emotional one, almost biologically controlled in some, not all ways. So there's a real difference we're learning between the actual physical brain and its workings in people who might be higher on the gray scale and lower on the gray scale. So What they found was, after looking at the MRI images and the questionnaires, that the conservative brain spends more time actually looking at the violent or disturbing images. And the liberal brain spent more time actually looking and focusing the eyes on the pleasant ones. The liberal brain measured more tolerance for uncertainty. The conservative brain measured more sensitivity to things that looked fearful the conservative brain saw more action in the areas of the brain associated with quick and low-level thinking, and the liberal brain showed firing more in the areas of the brain associated with critical thinking and deliberate reasoning. The liberal brain was more likely to shift the gaze to the eyes of someone talking to them or the eyes in a picture of a face, whereas the conservative brain was less likely to look at someone in conversation or to look at the eyes in a picture of a face. Isn't that fascinating? There might actually be a biology to why each of us is here this morning. The conservative brain was more likely to identify faces and images that were presented intended to be neutral as threatening. And the liberal brain less likely to see them as threatening. The liberal and conservative brain measured positive reinforcement equally, but the conservative brain had a greater sensitivity to negative stimuli or negative reinforcement. They've learned that the conservative brain seems to be more risk-adverse and the liberal brain more interested in providing for the common good. Political views correlate to being oversensitive to noises or less sensitive to noises. measured while undergoing uh, experimental conflict, the conservative brain is less likely to alter any habitual patterns of behavior while engaging others and acquiring new information, whereas the liberal brain was much more likely to alter previously habitual behavior when when involved in a conflict. And this happens to explain a lot for me, I don't know a lot about for you, but the liberal brain has a harder time sleeping and a more active dream life. And the conservative brain sleeps better, but has more mundane, run-of-the-mill, everyday life type of dreams. And here's the kicker. The liberal brain is a departure from the evolutionary norm. We are wired to be conservative. We are becoming, so the theory is going now, we are slowly becoming more liberal which is interesting. And there's not a lot of us here this morning. And I'm going to posit that one of the reasons for that is, you know what? As people who are high on the grace scale, universalists, we won. No longer does somebody have to stop being a Lutheran or a Methodist or a Presbyterian or Episcopalian to be involved in a liberal-oriented, progressive-thinking, open-minded religion. we're not that unique in the liberalizing anymore. In fact, it may be an evolutionary process. There's a recent book by a woman named Nancy Ellen Abrams, and she calls this book, A God That Could Be Real. And she posits, we may be evolving God. She's a scientist. Her husband was one of the people involved in developing the theory of dark matter, and so she comes from a scientific background, but as a person who admits to her own eating and food addictions and is the, the person in recovery through 12-step programs, she found herself praying all the time. She says, as if one part of my brain was talking to another part. And she said she knew she wasn't praying to a removed deity, but the praying process worked nonetheless. And she began to wonder, how am I a scientific person who also seems to have a need for prayer and for God? And so she started thinking more and researching, and she wrote a book. And what she says is that maybe God is an emergent phenomenon, not an entity. She says, in the emergent view of God, She says this comes from systems theory. A system gets complex enough, it self-organizes itself into something radically different. A radically new thing emerges from the overly complex system it left behind. She posits that perhaps humanity is going through that process and in the process, something that might not have actually existed might be coming into being as we hold the tension of our reason and in our emotion and our evolution, and our yearning, and our in touch with the mysterious imbalance, we may be actually helping God to emerge. She says, we know some things about God that cannot be real. God cannot exist before the universe. God cannot have created the universe. God cannot know everything. God cannot intend everything that happens. And God cannot choose to violate what we know as the laws of nature and physics. And so if that's the God we know we can't have, she posits, what might the God be like that we could have? What might it be able to be like? And she says, an emergent phenomenon. She says, the emerging God is the source of all meaning, old and new, and can be understood in this way in any religion that does not require taking its own teachings literally. Well, and there we go again. There's us in our universalism, high on the grace scale, evolving an emergent phenomenon that is God. we may very well be living into our own reality that accepts science and still acknowledges mystery and wonder. We may actually, as liberals, religious liberals, be creating a more grace-filled religion and a more grace-filled universe. The God we can't believe in is a reality, but reality does not preclude the God we can believe in or the God that might be. We take for granted now as religious liberals that are, with our liberal brains that mythos and story and emotion have to be tempered by reason, but we've also gotten to the place where we know reason alone isn't enough. I mean, I love Mr. Spock and I love Data, but there comes a point where either of those two characters is always running out of steam on the pure logic, right? It's the humanizing side, the emotional side, the side you can't account for that seems to make the difference. So it's the marriage of the heart and head that our tradition now pushes forward into the religious marketplace. We realize that atheistic fundamentalism is no better than a Christian or a Muslim or any other fundamentalism. That it's holding all we seem to know to be true in balance that seems to be getting us forward and lifting our hearts and making us more graceful people. Perhaps the religious systems we've inherited aren't enough for the way we need to go forward. And it makes sense. All the older systems are breaking down. The economic, educational, political, the old dialogical systems of our culture are breaking down. We see the evidence in the Occupy movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, the Sanders on the left and the Trump on the right politically. The old systems aren't holding up anymore. So maybe we do need an emergent God to go with what Phyllis Tickle calls an emergent church. Eight years ago, Phyllis Tickle at Duke University said, every 500 years or so, the church system gets so complex and bulky, it just has a huge rummage sale and reshuffles itself into something new. And a new church emerges. 500 years after Jesus, it was the fall of Rome. Then at a 1,000 years, 500 years later, it's the divide between the Eastern and Western Christianities. And 500 years ago, was the Protestant Reformation. She says, now we're right in the middle of one of those times again where faith, religion, the church in the West is reshuffling it all out and something new is going to emerge as church and faith and religion. And it goes really well with Abram's God. Both the emergent church, the emergent God, and our emergent faith will be more graceful and grace-filled. A former UU president, John Buren's is well known for his statement, tell me about the God you don't believe in. Chances are I don't believe in that God either. And his statement implies that the person he's talking to believes in a God science can't support, a God that is Father and Judge and Master and King. And I think Buren speaks for Unitarian Universalists and Unitarian Universalism when he says he doesn't believe in that kind of God. But here in our living tradition... Especially out of our universalism, we can talk about a God that is mother and friend and spouse and lover and earth, a God we co-create and help emerge, a God, a mystery, a wonder that is actually full of grace.